Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Sutton and today on The Culture Bar we will be discussing LGBTQ awareness and representation in the arts for the first of our Under the Spotlight series. And in order to discuss this important topic, we are delighted to be joined by three wonderful panellists. First up, mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton. Among many other accolades, Jamie has received the Richard Tucker Award and won the BBC Cardiff Sing of the World competition, where she was the only the second person in history to win both the main and song prizes. And of course, in 2019, Jamie lit up the last night of the proms, as well as last year being named Personality of the Year at the BBC Music Magazine Awards. Next, we have Edwin Atwater, conductor, curator, producer, and all-round polymath. Edwin has worked with many of the world's finest ensembles and is music director of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He has collaborated with the likes of the celebrated drag artist Peaches Christ and the equally celebrated heavy metal band, you may have heard of them, Metallica. And last, but by no means least, Christina Schappelman. Christina is a German arts administrator and one of only two women heading up a major opera company in the United States. She is general director of Seattle Opera and prior to that was artistic director of the Grand Teatro del Liceo in Barcelona. She has worked in Milan, San Francisco and Washington and was the first general director at the Royal Opera House in Muscat, Amman. What a panel. Welcome everyone. Hello. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, we are going to use the language of LGBTQ plus or queer community. We recognise there isn't necessarily a consensus on this, but we hope it is clear that our intentions are respectful. So turning to our panel, and as a starting point to act as a foundation for our discussion, it'll be great to know how you feel about these labels, what a better, better word. Um, so would anyone like to kick us off? Jamie? <laughs> well, uh quite honestly, I know that uh, there are a lot of opinions in terms of labels. I personally actually really like uh, being able to to claim some identity under the queer label. Um, I didn't come out uh, to the world or to myself, quite honestly, until 2014. It was a, a bit of a later in life understanding about myself. And uh, before that, I, I would have absolutely considered myself a straight ally. Um, I, the, the, the queer family, the queer community was absolutely a part of my life. Um, but there was something very, uh, inclusive about finding, uh, a family to <laughs> turn to, uh, when, when I was understanding this bit about myself. And so, uh, I, I proudly, uh, love the label <laughs> of queer or bisexual or whatever, pansexual, whatever one may uh, want to refer to me as, um, but I know that a lot of people can feel uh, boxed in by it or pigeonholed uh, by that. But for me personally, it's something that I identify with. It's something that I love. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's just my personal take. Thank you. And that makes perfect sense, Jamie. I mean, I think that's, that's uh, to an extent also that's necessary and good that we do have those labels. Personally, I, I don't like to be labeled. Maybe I'm just a little stubborn, which is actually true. Um, but I, I think the non-label gives me more freedom. I mean, I am who I am, like it or not. And uh, that's, that's not something I need to put a label on that to some extent labels also can then become also conventions. And then they defeat 
the the purpose of this wide variety of labels. So I, it goes. I mean, obviously, the arguments for both directions. Personally, I I don't like a label so much. I, I like the free spirit. Yeah, I think um, for me, I'm I'm a little. I, I'm actually kind of move into different labels at different parts of my life. You know, as, as identifying as gay or or you know coming to understand what queerness is and how you know that can mean various things. Uh, so labels are part of who you are perhaps, but not everything. And, uh, you know, maybe if you're presenting a concert or uh, trying to welcome people in, that might be something really to think about um, when you're an institution, which I'm sure we're gonna get into. But I think uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tent to be under and I'm, I'm happy to be part of that, this family. And as Armistead Maupin said, uh, you know, he wrote his memoirs called Logical Family. Um, I think for many um, queer people, you know, you have a biological family with whom you may or may not be close to through this process. And then you also find your, what Armistead said, logical family, which is people, you know, people who support you as a, as a queer person and you, and you can identify with, you know, maybe because you've shared a similar journey. Well, I think family, I mean, the biological family you have, your friends, you choose. And that, that is the greater circle of, 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 family that uh, that I think applies, but especially also in, in the arts or in, or in opera, you have such a wide spectrum of characters and, and people. And I believe that there is a sense of family just within the business also. I mean, I we include everybody. We, we want all sorts of types and characters because that's what enriches our art form. That's what enriches what you put on stage, how you connect to the audience. If we were all cookie-cutted as one way, I don't think we were as exciting as we are. Well, absolutely. And thank you for sharing your personal experiences. I would say, and do you agree, Christina, also in the arts administration as well as on stage, you need different types of people for different roles if you're all cut in the same cloth that would be uh, quite prohibiting. It'll be boring. I mean, I, I love variety. I I love people. You know, there are always people that you don't like and you do like. I mean, you don't have to really go out and have dinner with absolutely everybody, but I love people. I I I have a curiosity for what I don't know and that goes for places, for things and for people. And that's incredibly enriching and if you cut out based on some criteria that you don't want this or that, I think you're making your life your horizon just poorer. I, I think that the vari variety we have, especially in the arts and in opera, is fabulous. From the from your stage crew to the to the singer and everything in between. I think it's fun. I mean, I find this so enriching and so interesting to deal with all sorts of characters, preferences, types of people and that's what I think that's what makes us interesting also artistically. I've, I've got to agree. And I just wanted to say that I, especially coming from where I come from, uh, the artistic people in my community were the misfits. We were kind of the outcasts in a way, you know? So there is something unifying about being in a, 
an entire industry that is made up of a whole bunch of people who came from similar experiences. Um, and just back to what Edwin was saying, Edwin, I love, thank you so much for giving the original reference point of logical family. I've been using that term for years, thanks to Dan Savage, but I actually didn't know the original uh, uh, origin point. So thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure if Armistead came up with it, but yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? <laughs> then. It's a good quote and a good reference to say that was Armistead and Morpin. So that's, I think it'll work. Yeah, we'll stick with that. Thank you. Well, if I could just move on to maybe perhaps a more art specific topic with disregards um, the role and responsibilities which arts, arts institutions have to provide perhaps a greater variety of narrative. And perhaps we can discuss this more broadly, but specifically for the queer community. Um, I mean, Christina, can I come to you first? Because I know that. Seattle Opera recently published a racial equity and social impact plan. Was this a long-term initiative? That has been about two years, over two years in the making. So, I mean, that, that plan was uh, being defined and worked on uh, before I came to Seattle Opera. And, I, um, and I'm very happy that we are one of the first ones to actually um, have published such, um, such plan. It's a three-year plan in order and has various steps within inside the company, which includes also the board. And we're working with the board and with the staff on equity training. Um, and I, th I think it's important to, in the US and in the present climate, I think it's very important to make it very clear where you stand on those subjects because they're not obvious and not just you know, given. And so I think having this plan, and uh, we've also published it, it's on our website, it's, we've uh, shared it with Opera America. And I think it's very important to be clear that the company stands for something very specific, but it also is working on implementing it and not just putting it on the, on the website and say here, and it sounds good, but it takes some work also and, uh, and the board works with us. And of course there are some that are more uh, inclined to work with you on the subject uh, and also has a it's a generational issue sometimes and often it's a philosophical topic but it's important to talk about it and um, our board has been at least very cooperative in uh, participating also in equity training and in engaging in this dialogue so I think we need these type of plans in order to move forward as an industry and really be clear and obvious and actually implement equity. And does that also influence what you see on the stage as well within your plan? Yes, but to me that was already before. I mean, I've worked for the last 20 years with all, all my career, I've worked with all type of singers. I mean, white, black, Latino, Asian. To me, the mix on stage is in a way natural. If you have quality singers, you will have automatically a mix. If you're honest with yourself and you don't fall into habits and traps of going always for the same people and the same type of you. If you're honest with yourself as an artistic director or general director and you pick who's best, you will have a variety in your casting. But it goes further because it's not just on stage. The bigger hurdle is um, uh, the, the production uh, teams, you know, stage director, designer, set designer, costume designer, lighting designer, uh, the stage managers, 
that's where it takes work to really create variety because it's and also attract the variety but also make it very clear that you are looking for it that you will hire it that you're open to anybody and um, that that takes work and that takes active um, initiative and not just sitting there and waiting until you have um, diverse uh, candidates for these jobs show up you have to seek them out you have to establish and make it clear that you want them that you're hiring them that you're looking for this diversity and you have to actively also attract these this diversity early on so that you train them in into the business because they're not going to appear just by you know some magic well, I think it's really encouraging to hear that, as you say, it's not just a plan, it's being implemented and there's some active actions which, in order to realise it. Um, and it'll take time. I mean, the truth is it will take time because in some places the mindset is there and is open and cosmopolitan and, and diverse. And, and But even where the mindset is already there, there's still work that needs to be done to really make it part of your thinking and not just occasional thinking. But there are also parts of the US where it really takes more work, where it's just the, the traditional and historic um, trajectory of a society is different in that sense and is not as open, um, cosmopolitan, international, and, and just broad in its vision. And that, that takes time, it doesn't come overnight. It's not about making a plan and then you push the button and it's implemented. Changing people's minds is much harder than implementing or publishing a plan or making a law. Absolutely. Jamie, I see you nodding a lot. Do you want to pick up on this? Well, I just, I, Christina is already saying a lot of things that I've thought. And granted, I'm coming from the, the performer side of things, uh, much less the administration side of things. but. We, we have to become a part of what nurtures the future of administrators, people in the background, the costume designers, the, the, you know, the directors, all of this. Um, that's similar to what she was saying. This, this is where I see a lot of that inequality, um, just in terms of representation of who was hired. Um, and yeah, I think I was nodding so furiously because of the, the, the nurturing of these people opening our industry up and welcoming people in and attracting people from all walks of life um, is, is such a, a it, it's a monumental task, but it's 1000% worth it. And we've got to do it, you know, so, <laughs> so much in agreement, very, very that. <laughs> I wonder if, um, Jamie, specifically, you could tell us more. I know you're a volunteer for Turn the Spotlight, because um, I think it's great to also hear about institutions or movements which are doing this well. So am I right in thinking it aims for a more equitable future in the arts? Um, and yeah, it would be great to know more about your role with that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a mentor uh, with this group called Turn the Spotlight that is a micro mentoring group. The entire focus of it is to identify and nurture and kind of help uh, help the, the, the rise of these genius, genius people um, at earlier ages into the arts. Um, I've 
mentored one uh, mezzo. I'm actually mentoring another mezzo who is this brilliant producer. Um, both of them are women of color. This entire group actually very much targets women of color and other marginalized communities um, to help hopefully create more equity uh, within the business. Um, but it's, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be so very honest, I am the one I am the one and I think any of the mentors that work with this group would say that we're the ones who get the greatest benefit because we get to know these people who are so inspiring, that have such incredible ideas. And I, at this point, especially with this uh, wonderful woman that I'm mentoring now, Morgan Middleton, um, I'm honestly just sitting back and trying to make connections and you know, trying to get her in conversation with people who know about what she's trying to pursue in, in, in what she's doing. And so it's, it's uh, sometimes I feel very much like I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I have no idea, I, I don't have uh, experience in how to raise money to produce a, a piece of art. That's just something that I don't, you know, have the lived experience for. But you know what? I know at least five people who do, and I can get her in conversation with those. And so that that's really what we do. But it's if you go on the website and take a look at who's been on the list, it's just incredible. I mean, literally top down, it's just a a really inspiring uh, organization to work with. And it's just been it's it's been a real pleasure point in the last couple of years for me to be able to do something like this. Well, that's wonderful to hear, and thank you for sharing those experiences. Um, Edwin, I know um, we've spoken in the past about other arts institutions more generally and their civic responsibility, um, and also how that influences what appears on the stage. It'd be great to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing uh, from my friends here about equity, about who's on stage, and, and also I'm sure we think about who's in the audience. Um, and orchestras are a little different than opera, I think. Um, to say the least, because I think you can take these um, kind of older works and put a spin on it through directing or updating or revisioning kind of like you do in drama. Uh, in orchestra, it's a little harder to do that without it seeming gimmicky uh, to a certain extent. And I, you know, with a Beethoven symphony, for instance, uh, you know, you could have everyone wearing colorful clothes or so it just doesn't work the same way that it does with opera. So. I mean, the way I've gotten my head around this idea is that orchestras specifically are, are, are can be two things. Um, the way I think about it is, yes, we are the guardians of this 1400 year old tradition of, of you know, art music that's been written for these large groups of people that are, and by keeping and performing a Beethoven symphony again to a large audience, um, we're doing something really important by keeping this music alive and in contact with people. And in fact, teaching people how to play it over generations. And also just by repetition of these great masterpieces, just the refinement and the, and the kind of interpretive kind of uh, standards to which we have to rise are incredibly high. So that in itself is, is valuable, I think. Um, but then the other way I think of it is orchestras are two things at once. We are this guardian of this tradition, but we are also a civic institution. We're a stage of a large collective group of musicians um, who represent a city in the way that a sports team might or something like that. And, and we can, our job as well as being a tradition carrier or torchbearer is to, um, is to serve our community in all its diversity and, and for whatever it is. And so I think 
orchestras are just starting to do that a little bit. My work um, at the San Francisco Symphony particularly um, was about creating space um, for various uh, people who don't normally come in the halls or don't gather in the halls as, for instance, um, queer people. And, or, and so it's, it's fun and amazing to see that work. And I think it's just, it's just a way people think. It's really hard for people to think of both. Like, if we do this, then we're not, you know, carrying on this important tradition or job that we have. Yes, you are. You can do two things at once. It is possible, you know, to, to be many things, especially if you're a gigantic, um, multi-gazillion dollar you know, arts institution. It makes it even more pressing that, that you serve more people. And so uh, that is beginning to happen. I, I think it's just the, the tiniest baby steps, though. Um, I certainly feel like I'm on the forefront of this in, in, in the orchestra world, uh, less so than perhaps opera who's been able to do it. But I think, again, um, I use the word narratives a lot in my mind, which again is a theater or, or literature word, less than perhaps a symphony word. But uh, my English teacher whom I adore said, you know, the reason I read is to experience someone's life who's not my own. And I kind of think what experiences or what variety of experiences can we create on stage in an orchestral setting, um, which can kind of go along these lines and to, expose our audiences or to give, you know, to experiences which are different um, and unique and wonderful. Uh, Edwin, since you were referring to, to a tradition and, 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 you know, maintaining certain musical traditions, I also think we have to create new traditions and, and, and look into the future. There has to be an organic uh, evolution of what we do and not just take the old pieces and do them again and again. And I think in that sense, we all have a responsibility because as when we do this, we have to look beyond our usual circle of composers and librettists and just look for other stories also. Stories that are, I mean, it's stories for opera. I know in symphony, you only can tell so many stories, but the inclusion of other composers and, and mixing styles way more, will also maybe appeal to other people that we're not reaching right now, that just don't care about hearing Beethoven because they don't even know what it is, and nor do I have to. I mean, in Oman, they, the audience there had no idea, you know, if, if Beethoven is a, is a chocolate or if it's, a, or if it's a, a composer. And it didn't matter. What was important is to get them through the door and actually enjoy it. And, and I think we in the U.S. could potentially get more people through the door by having other type of composers and librettists also involved in what we do. And in, in the symphony, symphonic world, of course, composers. And uh, I mean, the Seattle, San Francisco Symphony under MTT has done a lot by expanding the repertoire uh, with American composers. But I think we all need to push forward Otherwise, what are we leaving? I do in 20 years, do we want the repertoire to look the same and the audience to look the same? And to change both, we have to do the uncomfortable work of introducing new things and taking risks, calculated risks, but risks. Otherwise, we will not have diversity, neither on stage, nor on our staff, nor in the administration, and certainly not in the orchestra. And for some, what? this is all going too slow, and I understand that, and I respect that. But things just are take time if you want to convince people and really come with you. And uh, maybe we don't really have time to be slow. So we're all, some of us, and, and Jamie is also 
um, a great example by mentoring and by being actively involved. And I think some of us are doing a lot uh, in, in pushing the agenda and hopefully we, we get somewhere. I, I'll, I will be excited if we can in a few years achieve a variety diversity that is different from where we are now. It'll be fantastic to be able to feel it, to see it. I, I really had a revelation in this COVID time and reflecting and all the social change you know, that's happening in the States. You know, I, I, I could say, you know, I've never been in an institution that hasn't become more diverse or had, you know, widened its umbrella uh, in my career. And that was from my, the very beginning, it was something I thought about. And, but I feel a really more of a sense of urgency now um, or a wake up call, just maybe because we're on pause and reevaluating. Um, and so the question of speed, um, I'm, I would advocate for that, you know, you know, and, and am doing more, even though I don't feel bad about what I did before. It just there's so much more we can do um, as institutions and individuals. And I'm feeling that from colleagues as well. Um, but I think time is of the essence. And in fact, one of my biggest fears, you know, about this pause in, in performing arts and, and all the reflection we're doing is, is that we will just slide back into our old routines when we when we come back that you know, a year from now, things will be back to normal. The economies of arts will be working in the ways they had before. There'll be this great demand and then, okay, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Uh, and I, I think this is an opportunity, uh, you know, to, to move faster. But Edwin, don't you think that um, in order to get restarted again, we need to push the diversity and the change very quickly because otherwise, the audience might not come back. Some of our usual audience might come back, but not all. So if we don't go out there loud and, and uh, with, with confidence about what we do and also implement changes, I think we're missing an opportunity, a, a fabulous moment of pause to restart with, with another energy, with a with slightly different paradigm also. Okay. Exactly, yeah. I was just going to say, I came from a place in a childhood where classical music wasn't a part of the landscape at all. Um, I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. There still is no cell reception, <laughs> no Wi-Fi. They just got running water two years ago. That's where I'm from. Um, so all of that is to say that classical music really had no, uh, it just didn't reach that far. But I found my way to loving classical music uh, through, through many things, through, through school, through uh, NPR, honestly, was a huge <laughs> um, uh, selling point. But I found my place in it as a kid who came from nothing that resembled classical music. And because of that, I have a very, very strong belief that there is a place for all of us. What I think what I'm hearing and I totally agree with and what I am personally setting for my goals going forward is to start not only choosing to highlight perspectives that haven't been highlighted. You know, if when I was going through college, basically every composer I learned about was a dead white guy, right? Yeah. And there is some really incredible music written by dead white guys. 
but there are so many perspectives that can be given voice and we are in the time right now and we have been in the time for so long where there are composers from so many different perspectives um, that just haven't been given the leg up. And I do think that we're in a time right now where arts and arts institutions are <laughs> really starting to, uh, well, the ones I should say, the ones that I wanna work with <laughs> are the ones who are really starting to make that a part of their mission. Um, I, in my own work and for, for any younger singers who might be listening to this, um, I just want to encourage people to take the steps where they can. Um, I think as singers, very often we feel like we are just, uh, we're, we're not the people who plan what gets done. Um, but that's not the case when it comes to recitals. And in my own recital work, I get to choose whose stories I tell and what settings of you know different poems I tell. And so I'm starting to try and reach outside of the box. It is difficult especially if you're talking about women composers, any uh, historical women composers, identifying queer composers, it's, it, it is difficult. You have to do a lot of extra legwork. But the response that I've gotten from the recitals that I've done that have been with that focus have been overwhelming. Now, most of the, most, <laughs> most of the uh, responses have been like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Holy crap! I've never, you know, heard this piece by by you know this brilliant composer who happens to be a woman. Some of the responses have been very. Uh, I, I literally had one audience member write on social media that I needed to get my bigoted butt out of their town. Um, but you know, I look at situations like that and I go, you know what? Then my message is coming through, and that message of coming from different perspectives is something that I am dedicated to. And it's just something that I really wanna encourage people to consider how they can do in their own walks, even if they're not the administrators of a wonderful opera company or an orchestra or something, we all have steps that we can take um, as artists that help open the doors for different perspectives. And at the end of the day, that is what I think is really going to be bringing in some new audience members, some new perspectives on stage, it just, makes it all better. It makes it all worth it. Jamie, I was, I was really resonating with what you were saying about how you found classical music um, on the farm. Uh, similarly to me, I mean, I grew up in West Los Angeles, so not really the same, but I wasn't exposed to classical music. I was, my parents tried to get me into it, but I was listening to other kinds of music. And then at some point I found it and I found people who loved it, who are like me. And, and, you know, they became my best friends and we, spurred each other on. And so, you know, there's this funny thing about classical music, which is we're such a long and entrenched tradition and we're have these huge buildings in the middles of cities. But the truth is, you know, we are kind of a subculture at this point in, 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 in the bigger world of entertainment and media and all of that. Um, and, and so it is kind of like you find your logical classical family, you know, going back to the beginning that become, and for me, working with young musicians at the SF Conservatory, New World, you know, various places over the years, you know, these kids kind of find each other in this world, which is very special and not like everything else. Um, and there's a sense of almost a queerness about that whole journey in its own, in its own right. And I think rather than, you know, the stance of classical music institutions being like, we're these great, you know, important things and you're lucky to you know step in our in our doors 
perhaps they should see the reality of what being a classical musician is like is it's a very small you know group of the population who really care about beauty and and depth and you know all these wonderful traditions and i mean if if even the institutions rethought about who are we and what you know what's the journey to us um it's not what they might think it is um we're still kind of in our own illusion of what we thought we were you know maybe in the 1930s or 40s or you know when you know the the rate, you know, the five voices of Firestone and all these kind of things were on TV all the time and Bernstein Young People's Concerts. It's it's getting more into a into a subculture experience. And maybe that's an advantage. Edwin, I think you just uh, coined a phrase that I think I'm going to identify with for the rest of my life, which is classical queer. Like, I love that. <laughs> that's fantastic. We are a bit of a subculture, but this is also the fun. I mean, some my one of my best friends we met at the opera when we were 16 and and we're fanatically going three four five times a week to a week to the opera and kept meeting there and he is still one of my best friends um i'm not going to say how many years later but anyway and and it it does create this community and we are a little subculture creates our 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 family our fan group but I think what you were saying, Edwin, also about, you know, the big institution and rethinking who we are starts also with those of us who run those institutions. I mean, a little humble attitude wouldn't hurt because we, we are not, we're not soccer. I mean, soccer here in this country is, you know, we're not football, we're not baseball. Um, we're not this automatic, huge, big attraction for the masses. So I think we need to be occasionally a little, or maybe all the time, a little humble and really reflect who we are. I believe we all think that we're giving a lot to, to the community, that music is, to me, essential to the community, to the, to the human being. But that doesn't mean that we are irreplaceable. Doesn't mean we can act with an arrogance as if we are uh, you know, God's gift to the world. We have to consistently bring our message to the community and, and really display how engaging and exciting and riveting, but also intellectually stimulating it is, how it can stimulate curiosity, broaden your horizon, stimulate your curiosity about your community or about history when you read about those white composers, because it's in, the classical music comes from Europe. So of course, they were all white in the... 17th, 18th, 19th century. But this now needs to change. And mainly really also because of the American situation that is so diverse. Let's broaden our spectrum of composers and music and bring in more. We, we, we add to our business if we bring them all in. And this is the chance. I mean, the 20th century could have done more, but we're in the 21st century now, and we, we need to really take this as a great opportunity and not as, a, not as an obligation or a work only. I mean, it will be work, but it's an opportunity that is enriching to all of us and to those who so far have not come to this great world of opera and classical music. And, no, you don't have to be an exclusive. I love rock. I like pop. I like jazz. But 
come on in and add to your repertoire as an audience and listen to us and and find yourself also. And if we want the audience to find themselves, then we have to do the work and bring in more people and different and really bring the diversity into all levels of our institutions. Christine, I think you, you summarized it very succinctly by saying it's tradition versus new traditions, if you agree with that. And, I'm, and Edwin, I just wanted to pick up on something with you is that I might be extremely ignorant here, but I think you're one of the few classical musicians or certainly orchestral musicians that celebrates your sexuality and your artistic content. And could you just talk a little bit more about that with that tradition versus new tradition? What maybe challenges you've come across in terms of diversity around the audience as well as on stage, how audiences versus institutions have reacted to that? Just what's to unpack there? Yeah, I mean, that's been one of my little pet projects is Holiday Gaiety. I was asked by, by the San Francisco Symphony actually to create a gay holiday show, uh, which was so fun. And we do it every year. And it's, it's basically the idea from the symphonies. Well, you know, they're like, you know, all of these co concerts in, in the holidays are, are, you know, kind of bring your kids and do all this. Well, what if you're like, you know, in a, you know, a gay adult who wants to go out and have cocktails and, and have a holiday party. Um, so it was pretty fun. Uh, and we, we um, kind of modeled it with comedy. Um, I, I am kind of a co-host with the a SF drag legend called Peaches Christ. And we kind of write a script and it's uh, kind of like an Andy Williams or Judy Garland variety show is that we have a, you know, a, a living room set and people ring the doorbell and come in everyone from Jane Lynch to Cheyenne Jackson to, you know, whoever. And, uh, and it's full of jokes. Um, and it's really, it's been an interesting journey. I think the biggest challenge um, is not the show. The show really works and we're always seeing how far we can go. One of my colleagues at the symphony wanted it our show to be um, edgier next year. And I said, do you really? Okay, uh, we're happy to. But I think the biggest challenge we've had with that show is, is marketing actually. Um, even though we've been on buses and on, 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 uh, on street lights and things like that, uh, then the symphony has definitely invested in it. I think getting the word out you know, to, the, to the, whatever the community here in the Castro, here in San Francisco, um, you know, a lot of marketing for drag events is on, um, is like flyers on a, on, a, on a telephone pole, you know, and, and the symphony just is so used to this kind of high level marketing that, you know, getting down on the streets is as far as time and resources and strategy is not something they're used to doing. So when you're reaching out to a new community and want to draw them into this fortress like, you know, hall across from city hall, and, you know, which is not inherently welcoming, um, to a queer person or to someone who hasn't been in there, um, you have to kind of go out and, and make contact. And I think we're learning how to do that um, bit by bit to kind of reach communities kind of not directly. Because even things like typeface or font, like there's a San Francisco Symphony House style in, in things that go out. And is the Symphony House style of, of visual marketing blurbs um, the way best way to reach uh, the new audiences? Uh, probably not. So that's, that's definitely one challenge. And the other challenge is the weight to be inclusive, and this is kind of a fun challenge, the weight to be inclusive is so dramatic. So we're, like you said, in charge of LGBTQIA+, we have one night a year, you know? And so like to get lesbian representation, to get trans representation, to get, you know, into one half hour comedy concert, is, is, it's an overwhelming, you know, kind of responsibility in a certain sense. Because um, we could easily go 
you know, the RuPaul drag show kind of popular culture, you know, intersection right now. But there are a lot of people we want to welcome into this, into this, uh, into this zone. And I wish we could have five concerts. You know, uh, we had a, you know, the first trans woman singer on our stage singing Sansons, you know, uh, and it was a huge moment. It was a relatively serious moment in a, in a rather silly show, but um, those things are really important to us. And I would say they're immense challenges. And, you know, we always end our programming of these concerts leaving someone out or feeling we didn't do justice, you know, to every single thing. Of course, that's impossible, but uh, we do okay. But those are, you know, we're, there's so many people left to include in, in, in orchestral music that we haven't brought in yet. It's like, it's just the tip of the eye. Does anyone else resonate with those experiences at all? I was going to say, I don't know if I resonate with those experiences, but I did want to volunteer as tribute if you need a bisexual singer for that, because I love Peaches Christ. And that sounds like such a fun evening at the symphony. I would we buy did. You'd be, yeah. Well, all right, you're next year. We got you. We had, um, we had Pat Reset and Beth Clayton on stage uh, last year. So the opera, the opera stars are kind of um, making their way into our into our little party every every holidays. And I, well, you they know, are many opera, in the opera uh, world. And if you have a queer opera gala, I'm I'm very happy to help plan. <laughs> I mean, San Francisco is the right place to do it or to start something. I mean, I live I lived seven years in San Francisco, and if that's not the place to do that type of gala. To, to start the type of gala, there is no good place to start. It's, it sounds fabulous. And as we're going around, I mean, you know, um, we're trying to bring it on the road in cities like Melbourne or places in Europe and other cities in the US. So there's actually, and I think a lot of it is, I think the drag race in RuPaul is a huge part of it. Like there's this huge queer presence in media that there wasn't until 10 years ago or so um, that's ramped things up and made it more understandable. And, and also in the movies and lots of different things, um, it's an opportunity for sure uh, that we can bring to other places besides, of course, San Francisco, obviously San Francisco, All right. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing it in London sometime soon then, hopefully. <laughs> um, you guys have all mentioned a lot about repertoire. And so I just wanted to pick up on that towards the end of this. So. Um, Particularly when you look at, we talked about the dead white guys, the historical context of the musicological context of some of these composers, um, whether that's something which is important to highlight. So, for example, in the fine arts, the likes of from Da Vinci to Hockney, it's quite well celebrated. And with Da Vinci in particular, his presumed homosexuality is mentioned about how it influences art, but there's not, from unless with my misunderstanding, not been done so much with composers from the classical music, um, unless I'm wrong. But I'd be interested to get your insights on that, as well as the ideas of commissioning more queer composers as well. Tchaikovsky is an example who had to hide his homosexuality all his life and has failed you know, relationship with a woman, the, his mentor who never met because they, you know, they were not supposed to, to to meet and uh, that was part of the deal and uh, I mean there are strange I'd say suppression or just not being as open about it like some painters have been over the course of history but on the other hand it, there are many gay composers and it was also known just talked about in a different way than among the the renaissance painters up to the modern painters but they're 
plenty of examples and, and wonderful examples, obviously. I would also just add the, as in popular culture, the likes of Freddie Mercury, George Michael, Elton John, their sexuality is celebrated and, and within their art form, but perhaps is it not so much in classical music? I don't know. I mean, yes and no. Benjamin Britten is a great example of, of an out queer composer um, that who has a queer sensibility, I would say, to a lot of his work, among other sensibilities. And um, then there are other composers like Copland, you know, who, if you know Copland's music, you can, you know, maybe understand um, what he was all about. And but I think, you know, it's. It, I was telling you earlier, Henry, like, you know, when Ronald Reagan used his music in his Morning in America ad, I wonder if he knew, you know, that, that Copeland was a, you know, gay Jewish socialist from Brooklyn. Uh, it probably not. And, and Copeland was essentially out and people knew what he was all about, but it, and then there are composers, you know, who have that idea of expressing themselves in their music, like Britain, I think did really quite amazingly and ahead of his time. Um, and for instance, composer, you know, we were just doing a Julie Seisman project at uh, San Francisco Conservatory, and his agenda as a composer, um, to a certain extent, was was what we might say queering the space. And he would even take, you know, confront other, you know, gay out composers like John Cage and and, and make them feel uncomfortable um, by making, you know, a John Cage songbook performance more overtly sexual than Cage himself wanted or thought it could be. So there's all sorts of play, I think, with other composers, but I think, you know, ideally to Christina's point earlier is we want all these narratives and spaces and varieties of experience, like, you know, on the stage singers, production managers, but we also want to create an environment in which a composer can feel free to be themselves and to express whatever they want to express, especially if it's, you know, some sort of narrative that's not a narrative that's been kind of uh, privileged over a long amount of time. I was going to say, I um, <laughs> the last time I was in college was in 2007. Um, so I don't quite know what the curriculum is these days up in, you know, 2021. That being said, the vast majority of queer history that I learned in my own art form came after college. None of this was put into the music history lessons that I went through. And so I hope that's changing. Um, I, I really hope that's changing. I'm hoping that we begin to get a, a broader sense of not only who the composers that we study in school are, but the other co composers that were around them. You know, how Clara Schumann influenced Robert Schumann. <laughs> you know, how, how uh, you know, the queer history that we're talking about right here. I just, I, I hope that there's more access to that information because I think that music is better performed with an idea of, it, of, of who the people were that were writing that stuff. You know, when, when I figured out, you know, that there was a, you know, clear line of queer, you know, in, in the 20th, well, specifically like 20th century uh, classical music, I start, started to feel a little more uh, in touch with the music that I was singing. And clearly that, that goes back way further than the 20th century. So I, I really hope that that is uh, an element that institutions, academic institutions are, are, are going to uh, be, be paying a bit more attention to and putting in the history books. I think it's really, really relevant. Could you help start my education right here? Could you recommend some contemporary, perhaps classical queer composers? Carolyn Shaw, like 
she's the first one that comes to mind. Um, yeah, Ian Bell, really wonderful English guy. <laughs> um, we won't hold that yeah. against him then, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> he is absolutely wonderful. Um, you guys, please, please chime in. You know, I think Ian Bell is a good example. He's a, he's a very good composer and a really, really, really nice guy. And, but back to, um, if I may, for a moment, when I agree with what Jamie said, but also as far as the conversation goes about the sexuality of composers, I think it also has to do that the audiences might be a bit more bourgeois and, and not willing necessarily to discuss that. You know, on the other hand, does it really matter that the sexuality, uh, the sexual inclination of a composer, if you're really, we want the quality of the music? Uh, I think in Europe, we talk about anything with much more and, and uh, without that many inhibitions. Uh, in the US, there's certain things that are dis either not discussed or discussed very carefully or are just not, people are just not so, so much at ease to talk about certain subjects, which I think is, is a mistake because that's what makes it kind of more obvious what is out there if you can talk about it with a certain natural ease and not be afraid of certain topics or subjects. And uh, there I think is, it goes for the diversity, for the racial diversity discussion as much as for um, sexuality. I think th those are all issues that one should be happy and capable uh, to talk about rather than shy away from it. I mean, just jump and, and discuss it. And I think that the society in, in the US, depending where you go, uh, does not so openly and easily talk about certain topics, especially certain symphonic and operatic audiences also. A section of it, not all of them, of course, and it depends where you are. And uh, I think it enriches the conversation and, and enriches people's perspective and minds to discuss the topics that maybe not are not comfortable for everybody. We'll just talk about it, bring it up, be aware of it, uh, enrich your horizon and see that the world is much more varied than yours alone. Well, what a fantastic message to finish on. Thank you, Christina. And many thanks again to all three of you for joining us, Jamie, Edwin and Christina. Thank you also to Ian Carter, Ed Milner, Ian Stones, Alice Jones, Beth Stewart, Fiona Livingston, and our sound editor, Merlin Thomas, all of whom have made this podcast possible. Our theme music was composed by Robert Cochran. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out all the other episodes from The Culture Bar, with topics ranging from the future of music technology to asking, how can sacred music be relevant in a secular society? We've had guests from the BBC to the British Museum, from former pro football referees to members of the UK Parliament. And to get all that and more, please subscribe. See you next time. Mm -hmm.